Harley Quinn, Mystique, Catwoman, and the Marvel ripoff Black Cat. Comics are full of femme fatales. But did you know that London was plagued with them during the 1800s? Not just independent women looking to cause chaos. An entire gang. Army, actually, may be the more appropriate term. These women operated as a unit, stealing thousands of pounds worth of jewelry and extravagant clothing each year, and the members were virtually never caught. Join us today as we discuss what some may consider the first real crime syndicate of London, the all-female gang known as the 40 Elephants. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Killing, Missing, Hidden, the podcast about bad things. This is your favorite host, your old buddy Brad, formerly known as the Sultan of Sexy. But that was that was back during my criminal lawyering days. Now I try to be a bit more humble, stay out of the spotlight. So let's spend the next little bit listening to every word I have to say. Now, here's my pre-show ramble, and I apologize for it. I think it was last week I announced that we had opened up a subscription platform on Ko-Fi. I've shut it down. I know it sounds fickle. It's not meant to be. The problem is I host my podcast on Buzzsprout, and I love them. They're very easy to work with, great customer service, and they've now opened up their own subscription-based platform, which means if I use it, any of these bonus episodes I publish go straight into your feed, or at least that's how they explain to me that it works. So I've shut down the Ko-Fi, I've opened up a subscription service through Buzzsprout. You can find the link in our Facebook group. I'm sure I'll plaster it all over Instagram, places like that. But it's going to be $5 a month, and basically any bonus episode I release, you're going to get instantly. So it should work out for both of us. Apologize for being you know, so inconsistent about this. But like I said, I liked Ko-Fi. I liked what they had to offer. I still think it's a good platform. But when Buzzsprout is going to automate everything for me, why, why would I not use that? So, you know, there we go. I don't have anything else to say before we begin this episode. I'm really, really excited about this episode. Like the more I dug into this, the more I just absolutely loved it. I hope you all enjoy it too particularly the ladies, because this is very much a girl power episode. So let's jump in, okay? So like I said, we're discussing the infamous 40 Elephant Gang. It was also known as the 40 Thieves. Now, this was an all-female crime syndicate that operated in London in the late 1800s. They specialized in property crimes, particularly shoplifting. Now, if you're a real, real history buff, this may be a little bit confusing because there was actually another gang in New York known as the 40 Thieves that operated in the early 1800s until the American Civil War began in 1865. These ladies mainly went by the name the 40 Elephant Gang, and they took their name from the Elephant and Castle area of central London which is where they primarily operated. These ladies were so skilled that the gang lasted until the 1950s before police could finally dismantle it. That's at least 100 years. But the problem is we don't truly know when the gang formed because they were so good at keeping secrets. The first recorded news activity was in 1873. But female shoplifters had been operating seemingly independently for years before, according to police arrest records. And there's some researchers who make the argument that this gang really came into fruition in the late 1700s. 
Now, as the years went on, you know, the size of the gang fluctuated. At its peak, it supposedly had just north of 70 members. Now, this group formed because of the lack of opportunities for women during this time. You know, if a woman wanted to make their own way, if they wanted to have their own money, they had to pursue careers in various forms of servitude. They had to be a maid or a waitress or a prostitute. And, you know, those women that had fallen in with the gangs that men ran often weren't respected, and they were kind of expected to perform those same servitude roles. They rarely rose in rank, and they almost always received a much, much smaller cut of the loot than their male peers. So frustrated with this glass ceiling and glass walls that kind of dictated their entire lives, the women that joined the 40 Elephant Gang were the sort that were like, I'm striking out on my own, and I'm going to raise some heck. Now, the 40 Elephants took advantage of fashion trends at the time and customer service trends as they rose to power. They, they first of all, as far as fashion trends, they would wear coats and bloomers and skirts and carry around muffs and cummerbunds and all that mess that women wore during this period. But they would modify it. There would be hidden pockets and other secret compartments kind of built into their clothing. They even went so far in some operations as to build false arms. So it would look like, a, you know, a hand is coming through uh, a coat and maybe resting in a muff, but really that would just be a prosthetic limb. Their real hand would be underneath the coat, free to grab whatever items they could off the shelves. So when it came to how businesses operate at this time, it was considered rude for a shopkeep to follow a woman around the store. You know, if a woman had any questions about a product or an item, they would come to the clerk and ask them. The clerk would make sure to kind of give women privacy as they shop, which just provided a wonderful opportunity and ample opportunities for these women to shoplift expensive clothing and other merchandise with really very little risk. It was said that a small group of the 40 elephants could empty out a store in less than an hour if the staff were particularly inattentive. Within a few years of known operation, the gang was to believe to be earning thousands of pounds per year. And they had in the process of building the gang, established a really sophisticated network of fences, storage locations, high-quality forgers who could make false bills of sale and other documents to make the gang's ownership of all this clothing and all these goods appear to be legitimate. Now, the fences were very skilled at working with buyers of local high-end retail boutiques or pawnbrokers, they would take the clothing and remove all identifying tags or marks from the store that the clothing originally came from. Oftentimes, they would alter it a little so it was clear it wasn't a copycat from the store it originally came from. And then they would take this clothing to the buyer of another boutique or department store and sell it to them at a discount. And so while all of this thievery is going on and all these stores are suffering, they're also benefiting from the fact that because of the activities of this gang, they're able to get very high quality, very well-made, very expensive fabrics and clothing at a fraction of the price. Now, the gang was known for having a strict code of honor. They called it the Hoisters Code. And one of the big portions of this code was you never, ever, ever wore anything that you stole. Stolen goods were not yours. They were the gang's. And the, gang's, the gang would dispose of it in the proper manner. 
you also, if you were sent on a job, if you were told, hey, Friday, you're going to be part of this team that's going to hit this store. Thursday, you are forbidden from drinking. And more than anything, snitches got stitches. <laughs> that was something that was strongly ingrained into the culture of this game. You never, ever, ever rat. And as long as you don't rat, we are all safe. Now, when I say that these ladies were moving thousands of pounds of merchandise per year, that was not as a gang, okay? That was her member of the gang. They became rich enough off of their activities that, you know, during the, the 20s and 30s, they were living as modern-day movie stars, or at least that lifestyle. Uh, according to people smarter than me, you know, just taking 5,000 pounds in the 1880s would be the same as having about 477,000 pounds today. So these chicks were making bank in what they did. Most of them were supporting their husbands, and that was a little unusual at the time. But when you're rolling in dough, eh, why not? I mean, I would take up the opportunity to do that. Now, one of the primary reasons for their decade-spanning success, maybe centuries-spanning success, was just how tightly operated they were. Again, they worked the same territory, or they worked this territory at, uh, in the area known as Elephant and Castle. There was a male gang that also claimed this area. And the women, the 40 elephants, decided that they were going to work with the men. Of course, the women could outsmart and outcharm the men. And so it became essentially this deal where the women would do their jobs and the men wouldn't really interfere with it. But the women had this army of males, this male gang at their back, should they ever need them, should they ever get into real trouble, which they rarely did. And it benefited the ladies even more because police were aware, aware of the male gang. And of course, they're willing to recognize a male gang because a female gang could never outsmart the cops, you know, at this time period. So whenever there was a big hit or something like that, the police wouldn't go looking for any women. They would blame it on this male gang. It, so they just, because of their relationship and their diplomacy, working with this other gang in the same territory kind of gave them another cloak they could hide behind. So not only were they super sneaky, they had a shield that prevented anyone from seeing what they were doing. Or, you know, because of sexism and believing that women were inferior, nobody could see what they were doing. Now, despite how careful and well-organized the 40 elephants were, it really was just a matter of time before the retailers had to admit that they were being bamboozled by this gang of female shoplifters. And so that kind of put the 40 elephants in a bit of a bind. They, you know, of course, still loved their money and didn't want to give up the lifestyle they had bit, built. So they decided to kind of expand their operations again. They went outside their comfort zone. Some of them, particularly the more notoriously known shoplifters in the area, they stopped leading the charge in stores and they began taking jobs either in smaller towns where they wouldn't be recognized, in seaside ports where people were passing through all the time and the chance of them being identified was low. They, of course, continued to hit the same stores in their area, the ones that they had gotten so accustomed to looting. and. The staff of these stores, if they suspected that you were a member of this 40 elephant gang, would go bananas if they saw you in their store and would practically run you off. But the problem was they, you know, it's not like you had a special tattoo to mark that you were in the gang. And sometimes they got it wrong. 
And sometimes they would chase off an actual legitimate customer, maybe a wealthy woman whose husband has connections in government or the police or other powerful institutions. And that kind of caused stores to become villainized for chasing off legitimate customers. So all of a sudden, not only were they getting their merchandise stolen out from under them and they couldn't stop it, now legitimate patrons were refusing to shop there because they had been insulted at being lumped in with this group of ruffians. Now, uh, this, this did hurt the profits of the gang. And so even though they've in increased their territory and even though they've tried to, you know, circulate some new blood in so they're not as recognizable, they, they had to adopt new tactics. And arguably, as you know, in studying this gang, I would say their greatest strength was they were so malleable. They were willing to do what it took to be successful. They actually were considered the first London gang to begin investing in cars as part of their criminal activity. And in fact, they would get people to kind of soup up the cars with custom-made engines and modifications so they could outrun police cars. They also made extensive use of the London Underground Rail System. Every member was expected to know the entire labyrinth of subways and um, like the back of their hand, just without question, you knew where you were going at all times. And so they developed this really complicated scheme, but a very effective scheme whenever they felt like, whenever a member felt like they were being chased or tailed by a copper, they had invested in luggage and they would put their stolen goods in one of these suitcases. And what they had wisely done is they had bought a ton of suitcases that were identical looking. Not only that, they made sure to buy what were the most popular styles. So even if it wasn't a suitcase they owned, it would be another, you know, another traveler's suitcase could look identical to theirs. And so they would, you know, as they felt the heat coming down on them, they would go into the underground where the, the subways were, and they would drop their suitcase off in a designated area, and lo and behold, there would be an identical one just sitting there waiting for them. And so they would pick up this other one. And then they would get in this game of another gang member would come by and pick up that sec, you know, the the, the hot suitcase. They would hand it off to another member who was carrying exactly the same suitcase. This thing would be hot potatoed around so nobody could follow them. Nobody. And then because, you know, they would dress very fine, like, very, you know, women of high class and whatnot. So when the, the one that had committed the crime, the one that the police were tailing, would actually stop to hail down a taxi, well, guess who was driving the taxi? It was their, you know, fraternity, their, their fellow fraternity brothers there. And so they would take the suitcase and put it in the car. And if for whatever reason, the, the 40 Elephant member hadn't been able to dump the goods, she had a special signal she could give to the taxi driver or the porter, some of these train stations had porters that would load up your gear. And they would, they would too would have a suitcase and they could make a last second swap. They were so effective at this that there's no record of police ever catching them with stolen goods in hand in these suitcases. It's unreal. And I mean, it, it was difficult for me to follow their, their strategy when it came to the handoffs and things like that. I mean, it's literally something from a heist movie. And we're talking about this happening in the 1870s, you know, 1880s, whenever. Now, like I said, members were almost never arrested. The few times they got caught, 
is usually when they tried to cash in on a crime of opportunity. For example, there was a girl by the name of Maggie Hughes who was sent to scout a jewelry store for a hit they were going to make later. But while she was there, the clerk who was on duty was cleaning the merchandise. And he pulled out a tray of 37 diamond rings, set it down on the counter, and realized he needed a clean rag, and went into the back. And so she saw 37 diamond rings left unguarded. And she knew she couldn't pass up this opportunity. So she grabbed the tray and she stealthily made an exit from the store. The clerk never heard her, never realized anything funky was going on whatsoever. But as she exited the store and was backing away, she literally backed into a cop who had his back, who was there in front of the store, but had his back to the action. And had she not done that, she probably would have gotten away with it. But there she was caught red-handed. Now, when situations like this did occur, they were kind of, the legal system kind of protected them, which is fascinating. They rarely put themselves in a situation where they would face a sentence of more than a year. Shoplifting was considered a very, very low priority crime in the criminal justice system at this time. And, you know, the police really weren't interested, even when the 40 elephants were really kind of like a thing, a celebrity group almost. The police weren't interested in throwing the book at the girl that was caught. They wanted the leadership. And of course, that never happened because, again, of the rule, you don't snitch. You never, ever snitch. In fact, to further protect the members of the group and whatnot, every member had to come up with multiple fake identities, not just a name but entire backstories. I mean, it was like they were writing a novel. And it would be enough information that police would believe that these were real people. And so they would let the girl go for cooperating. They would go chase down this false persona. And it wasn't until they had gone through multiple contacts and hit up multiple locations that they realized they were chasing a ghost. I mean, the operations they pulled off were just a thing of beauty. Now, 1910 is a big year in the history of this game. After weeks and possibly months of really skilled detective work by the London police and constant surveillance on known members of the gang, the police found what was thought to be one of the largest storehouses the gang kept. So they had a real opportunity to absolutely cripple the gang financially. So once they were comfortable that they had the right spot, there was no problems, they weren't going to run into any muscle, they kind of formed a, a, a raid team, you know, a SWAT team, I guess, in today's terms, and just, you know, kicked in the door, ran into the warehouse, weapons drawn and all this. And the only people that were there were an old man and woman, a couple who claimed that they lived there and they worked there. The man kind of did the manual labor and the woman kept the books. And of course, the police knew that this would be, there would be some scheme here because it's the 40 elephants. So they... Didn't, you know, think anything about this older couple living there. They didn't let that appearance throw them off. They instantly went to the woman and said, okay, you're the bookkeeper. Give us your books. They went through the ledgers and were shocked to see that every single item in the building was properly accounted for. Now, the ledgers, of course, were absolutely false. But the woman, and her name is Ada McDonald did such a good job in forging not only the ledgers, but documents to support the entries in the ledgers that the police investigators couldn't find a single flaw. They could not point to one item and say, 
you don't have proof of ownership of this. This was clearly stolen. But regardless, they had spent so much time and, and money and resources on this case that they insisted this couple be tried for stealing all these goods. There's probably a, one estimate I saw said there's around 50,000 pounds of goods in today's money inside this warehouse. And so they take these people to trial and the jury acquitted them. They said there's, you know, they told the prosecutor afterwards, y'all didn't produce a single bit of evidence to suggest that anything in that warehouse was stolen. And so because Ada had these amazing bookkeeping and forgery skills, she saved the gang 50,000 pounds of money. It's in. It's so impressive. All right, now, World War I came, and the gang saw this as an opportunity to expand operations into new fields of crime. They were particularly interested in burglary, blackmail, and forgery. They would use the skills they already had to get jobs as maids in the wealthiest of households. And what they would do is they would forge letters of recommendation from very, very well-known or reputable members of society, most of whom were off at war. And but they would have the proper seal and everything. It just it was clearly a letter from that person. And so the homeowner would see this and would accept the recommendation on its face. And so what they would do is they would try to get hired in bulk. You know, they, they would do the song and dance for my sister or my aunt or whoever needs a job too. They would try to get two, three, four of them in a house at a time. And they would be the best maids they possibly could be until the right moment presented itself. And, you know, it was just a matter of time until... You know, the husband and wife, assuming the husband was still in London, you know, decided that they would go out to on vacation for a weekend or they were going to go to an extravagant party and would be gone all night, things like that. And as soon as these women found out that they had an opportunity, they would alert the powers that be in the 40 elephants. And that night it would be like locusts came through and they would steal anything of value. And so when the homeowners got home, it was like they were coming home to an empty shell of a house. They also got in the business of blackmail, like I said, and what they would do in these situations is if they called on a house and the owner of the house was male and not married, well, then one of the girls would start up a relationship with them. Or if it was a situation where the wife was away, if the man was single in any aspect, they would use their charm, seduce the man, have an affair with him, and then immediately just put the screws on him and start blackmailing him. And, you know, they would do, they would do everything they could to it. Like they, their big thing is they wanted love letters from their mark. And so they would, you know, write these lovely things. And of course, men aren't very smart. And so they would write back and all that. And that's when they would say, we got you. And, you know, once, once they had the man confessing to engaging in carnal activities on paper with his signature, they would confront him and say, boy, your wife would hate to see this letter, wouldn't she? Or... I bet the president of the bank you work at sure wouldn't want to employ you as a vice president when you're off doing these sorts of stupid things. And so they would threaten the relationship or the man's reputation or both and just be able to extort huge sums of money, oftentimes over the course of months, just from simple blackmail. Now, as you know, as World War II ended and we entered the 1920s and all that, the flapper lifestyle became kind of the pinnacle of society. And the women of the gang began copying this Gatsby lifestyle. 
They threw these massive parties that they would pay for. They would rack up huge bar tabs. They spent lavishly wherever they went and just became pseudo-celebrities. I mean, they were kind of the influencers of their time. Of course, they wanted to keep enjoying the they wanted to keep making the money they had they had worked so hard to to steal. But they wanted to use that wealth too. They didn't just want to sit on it. They wanted to have fun with it. Then, like I said earlier, as time moved forward and movie stars became a big deal across the Atlantic in the United States, they decided they wanted to copy that lifestyle too. They these were the it girls of London during the 20s and 30s and 40s, okay? What whatever was popular in the world, they were going to be at the forefront of it too. They were going to bring it to London. This group could not have survived all of this without this really strict military style discipline. And it never changed. The group was run by a person who was named the Queen. And she was the unquestioned head of the game. You know, if she said jump, everybody jumped. It didn't matter. And it was her job, her primary responsibility to keep the gang safe. So in a way, you know, it's, it's the head that wears the crown is heavy or whatever that saying is. Um, I know it's not that and I just butchered it and made myself sound stupid, but we're used to that. Um, like while her girls were out throwing these parties and getting drunk and having fun and yada, yada, yada. She wasn't. She was focused on what's going to be our next job. How are we going to do it? Who's going to do it? How are we, you know, what are going to be our specific plans of our heist? What what weaknesses do we have in the organization? What do I need to do to make sure we've got lawyers available? Should we need them? Things like that. So like one of the most well-known and popular queens to ever rule over the 40 elephants was a woman named Alice Diamond also known as Diamond Annie. Now, she was a big woman. I don't mean, and I mean Amazonian type big. That's what she was often described as. Very big, very strong. She had grown up on a farm, so she just had, just, you know, from childbirth, well, from adolescence on, just had developed a lot of core strength. And she stood at a height of about five foot nine, five foot ten. And this is a time when men average five foot six in height. So she really, not only was she broad shouldered and muscular and all that, she was taller than most of the people she dealt with. She also, and I thought this was really cool, from her earnings over the years as she was climbing the ranks, she would buy these special diamond rings. And she wore one on every finger. So she had eight of them. And while many people thought it was just this opulent display of her wealth, she actually had them made in a very specific way, such that, that they operated as a makeshift, but very expensive pair of brass knuckles. And she was infamous in the criminal world for being able to knock a man out with a single punch, often breaking their jaw in the process. So, yeah, just like any other successful game, violence was a part of the lifestyle. You know, other gangs saw how much money the 40 elephants were making, and they wanted to get a cut of it. So they would try to move in on the elephant's territory, but that you didn't do that. The elephants protected their tor territory, and they protected it aggressively. If you were ever caught, if you were man or woman, if you were ever caught by a gang member stealing in their territory, you were expected to pay a tribute from what you had stolen to be allowed to work in the area. You know, they would come to you and say, you want to steal, that's fine, but you're going to give us a cut of everything. Now, if you refuse to do so, there would be trouble. You would more than likely end up being kidnapped one day, taken to some little hole in the ground, and just have the crap kicked out of you. And you would wake up the next day and they'd beat you again and they'd beat you again. And they would do this until either you said you were done stealing or you agreed to pay the tribute. They were vicious about protecting their territory. 
And if you wouldn't break, then they would go after your spouse and your children and administer the same punishment to them. They were sending their message. Murder was not off the table. Now, it was a tool of last resort, but if they had to slit your throat to get you out of there, so be it. Many of the experienced members of the gang would carry handkerchiefs, and these handkerchiefs would conceal razor blades. They often had long and hardened hat pins that they could pull out. And of course, they all were accustomed to street fighting, so they had they could make good use of their bare fists when they had to. They were not at all afraid of any other gang. And again, like I said, they had the male gang in their area who would back them up. So if they ever found that they were going against the gang that outnumbered them, they could even the odds pretty quickly. And the thing about the male gang that helped the 40 elephants so much was at this time, if you were going to join a gang in London, if you were a male and joining a gang, you were expected to go to prison. Like you weren't trying hard enough in the gang if you weren't going to prison. So these men had no problems being at the forefront of any fight, doing any sort of dirty work the 40 elephants didn't want to do. And if they got caught, that was just part of being in the gang. And what Alice Diamond was so good at was manipulating the male leadership of this gang. You know, whenever there were issues or problems, whenever the 40 elephants were maybe calling in too many favors, then she would start arranging marriages between key members of both gangs. And that always solved problems because so many of her members, yeah, they lived a street life and yeah, they had come from nothing, but they had made themselves into something through this gang. And they really, they, re, they all really wanted to be beautiful. So they would go to extremes to be as pretty as possible, which of course the male member, the male gang just absolutely loved. And Alice took advantage of this and leveraged it to her gang's favor. She was a very good queen. Except she had pride. And as Marcellus Wallace taught us in Pulp Fiction, pride will mess with you. Pride will be your downfall. So, because of the way Alice did business, one of the requirements of being in the gang was if you were going to enter into a serious relationship with another man or a woman, they, they didn't care. Um, you needed to get it blessed by Alice. And she wasn't, she wasn't, you know, some prude or anything like that, but she wanted to make sure that she had some of her best girls available whenever she needed them. And she didn't necessarily want them tied down with marriage. She also had some that she was grooming to marry into the male gang. And so they could not be involved with somebody outside of it. Well, this this didn't always go over very well. And Alice came to a senior member of the gang one day and said, look, you know, I'm going to need you to marry such and such in, in the male gang. And the girl objected. She said, no, look, we've I understand we've been working closely with the gang and I like them. And in fact, I've fallen in love with one of the other members of the gang and I'm going to marry him. Well, Alice said, no, you're not. This is how it's going to go down, okay? And the girl ignored Alice's explicit instructions. In fact, she went and eloped uh, very soon afterwards. Alice got so mad that without taking a breath, you know, without counting to 10 or anything, she grabbed a group of all the elephants who were available at that moment and marched to the newlyweds' house. She broke down their door and went in there and drugged both of them out into the street and began beating them furiously and without mercy. Well, the rest of the elephants, who weren't instantly recruited by this, I mean, word of this event spread like wildfire throughout this area in London. 
And so the elephants who weren't asked to participate heard about this and didn't understand what was going on. Meanwhile, you know, the men's gang heard about this and basically said, what, what is this woman doing? So they both show up to break up the fight. And then it just became this melee. I mean, everybody was fighting everybody. It's, it ended up being known in the press as the Lampbeth riots or the Battle of Lampeth. And it caused, well, a lot of injuries. It caused a lot of police to break it up. Uh, lots of property was destroyed. But most importantly, it caused a really deep division in the 40 elephants. A lot of the women were really sick of this idea that they couldn't have their personal lives separate from the gang lives. And so, you know, Alice was arrested for inciting a riot and the elephants used this opportunity to expel her from office and appointed a new leader, a new queen. Her name was Lillian Kendall. Now, sadly, Lillian was not as good at her job as Alice was. And in case you're curious, Alice, actually, when she was kind of kicked out of the gang, she went off and started a brothel and became a very successful brothel owner. Now, while all this is going on, you know, this, this moment was is arguably the downfall of the gang. Again, once the 1950s came around, they vanished. Um, but for these last few decades, the newspapers loved the 40 elephants. They were romantic heroes. And we're talking not just in London, but throughout all of Britain, throughout a lot of the English-speaking world in Europe, and, of course, in the U.S., too, stories would run all the time about their antics and escapades. And the police actually went to um, the publishers of newspapers and say, please, stop publishing these stories. You're making these women seem like they're engaging in ventures from a comic book. We can't have this. And it's causing residents to actively, like, hide the gang members or conceal their activities. And people would be so excited to say, oh yeah, I helped out the 40 elephants today. But of course, the press wouldn't stop doing it. Um, they, they actually, the, the press went so far as to deem them as the aristocrats of crime in London. So that's the tale of the 40 elephants, and I love it. It's one of history's greatest crime organizations that we never seem to hear about. I mean, I had never heard about them until I just stumbled into an article talking about some sort of uh, how gangs operated in London during the 1800s. And it was almost a footnote that the 40 elephants were mentioned. And to me, it just makes it so much cooler that this was a gang of women doing all this. I mean, in a time when basically women existed just to make babies and clean up messes, to have them, you know, stealing the show and performing all these daring acts of, of burglary and, and whatnot, it's, it's so cool. And I, I find it kind of sad that, you know, this amazing organization ended up dying with such a whimper, you know, that just kind of faded away. That... I guess they just couldn't, you know, modern police work probably was advancing more quickly than they could adapt to it. And eventually folks started squealing and whatnot, and that's how it went down. But, you know, I, I, I just, I love folks who ignore the rules to live their life their own way, how they want, at least so long as it doesn't hurt somebody. You know, I, I don't like you know, a, a drug cartel that moves in and kills all the residents of a village. Eh, not in love with them. But these women just, they were hurting businesses and business owners, which, no, I don't want businesses to fail. But by the same time, they're providing a supply line to businesses. So it was this weird 
parasitic relationship that still was kind of symbiotic. It, it was just bizarre. And, and again, what else were these women going to do? I mean, their next best option, honestly, was prostitution. And that's a horrible job. That's their, this is the only job they could get where they're in control. And, you know, excuse me, society put all these obstacles in their way, these just made-up obstacles about what the rules for women were. But these women said, fine, we'll make our money our own way. And they did it in such a way that they actually took advantage of these obstacles. Because, again, like I mentioned, police never admitted that the 40 elephants were behind the gang because they never wanted to have the press portray them as being outsmarted or outfoxed by these women because women were dumber and weaker than the police officers. So that just wouldn't jive. We couldn't have that perception. So when these, <laughs> when these ladies would pull off a heist, the police would have to make it look like it was a gang of men just to save face. And so a lot of these crimes went, well, they would be prosecuted, but not successfully because there wouldn't be any evidence. And again, on top of this, even if they are caught, because of the way the criminal laws were written, the most they could get was a year in jail. And like one of the cool things the gang did was they operated as a union. And so they actually would take some of the funds and set it aside to have a lawyer fund. And so if you ever got arrested, there was a good chance you weren't going to jail anyway because they'd bring in the best lawyers they could to get you out of this mess. On top of that, well, they had a medical fund. So if you ever got injured during a job, they'd take you to the doctor and get patched up. They really, really, really took care of each other. So, I mean, they just broke down all these walls that the male society had erected and then used them as shields to run amok. And I have to give them massive props. I'm, I'm personally shocked that this story hasn't been made into like a major blockbuster movie because this is so, such a fun story. This is so cool to have these women just pulling off these elaborate heists and have all these elaborate safeguards and to just live like queens of London. It's just awesome. I applaud them. If you're interested in learning more, I found two books that look promising. I didn't read the other one of them because, Lord have mercy, I can't tell you the last time I was able to sit down and read a book. I think that just goes with having kids. But anyway, the two books are The 40 Elephants by Aaron Bledsoe. Easy enough to remember. The other one is entitled Alice Diamond and the 40 Elephants. It really focuses a lot more on Alice's reign of the of the gang in that time period. That book is by Brian McDonald. Uh, I believe both of them are available on Amazon. I'm sure you can find them at other bookstores too, whatever your preference is. Now, The 40 Elephants by Aaron Bloodsoe, from what I can tell, is more of a historical fiction. It's based on the real-life activities of the gang, but... It has fictionalized characters, and I don't know how much it sticks 100% to the truth. I couldn't find a book that was just, here's the history of the game. But, you know, we've got this biography of Alice Diamond. We've got this semi-historical fiction based on what they did. It's between the two, if you're interested, I'm sure one of them or both of them would be decent reads. All right, so we're going to jump into the palate cleanser, and I found a really, really dumb one that I couldn't pass up that just fit this episode too well, okay? So once again, Mr. Eli's out of a job this week. Here we go. The thief who broke into my house and stole my diary, he was recently in a car accident and died. My thoughts are with his family. Oh, that's so stupid. Oh. So amazingly stupid, and yet I love it. What is wrong with me? All right. Well, uh, this episode's well over 45 minutes. We're closing in on an hour, it looks like. I won't drag this out any longer, you know, but thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. Like, of, 
of all the episodes I wrote during December, this was the one that I was like just the most giddy about. I've already told my friends about it, so they're not going to listen to this episode. <laughs> um, but, you know, please share it with your friends. I mean, of all the episodes I've done recently, this is the one I would hold up and say, you got to check this one out. I hope you agree. I hope I'm not just standing here on an island and all of y'all are like, yeah, Brad, I'm glad you're excited. Uh, we're going to go on to better things. Um, you know, but again, um, I don't know if y'all saw on social media, got the stats from Buzzsprout about what I'm, what all we did last year. And it was just amazing, like 170 plus thousand downloads. And we were heard in over 100 countries. Um, and that's all because of y'all, because y'all are amazing. And you really... I mean, again, I'm just a dude that sits here by myself. You know, I don't really have any help. I do the writing. I do the editing. I do the talking. Um, I do all the research. I do the marketing. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's y'all that have made me grow because I don't, I don't know how to make me grow. <laughs> uh, so thank y'all for that. Again, I'll point you back to our newest subscription service um at, at through buzzsprout there's links everywhere they don't give me a nice clean easy link that i can just read over the the air which sucks but if y'all check that out it's five dollars to join any bonus episode we, we receive again my understanding is it goes straight into your feed whether you use apple podcast or or whatever um now if i'm wrong about that someone please correct me because this is brand new they just released it within the past week and I jumped on it and we've already had some subscribers uh, to it. In fact, I should probably do a shout out, shouldn't I? I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite the terrible job here on, uh, on my own uh, uh, begging for money, I guess you would call it, but uh, Grant R and Alec S are our first two subscribers here through our new Buzzspout platform. Very excited, very honored. Um, so yeah, check it out. I'm actually going to try to release another episode. It may come out before this one even. Because um, I found a really weird story that I just have to share with y'all. It's a short one, but it's a good one. Okay. See, I saved my rambling for the end. Y'all should appreciate that. You don't have to wait 20 minutes. And, you know, the rambling's not about my kids or anything, you know, that nobody cares about. I say that jokingly. I love my kids. Y'all know that. Um, but anyway, thank y'all for everything you do. Y'all really, I mean, I would have given this up a long time ago if it wasn't for how supportive and how awesome y'all are. You really make me feel like people enjoy this podcast, and that's so cool. So, anyway, love you guys. I hope you all have an amazing week. Until we talk again, this is Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.